Here at last comes the end of our fellowship. I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are in evil. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Chomping After Dark, the podcast where we spoil your favorite games and the occasional movie. We have come together to end this three-part episode series as we have discussed one of the greatest movie series ever created. The final movie in the trilogy grossed $1.146 billion in the box office and has a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It is a satisfying ending that leaves you wanting more, but knowing that the journey must end. Today, we will be discussing The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And we will be discussing the extended edition. But before you settle into this episode, just a few quick reminders. If this is your first time here and you are loving what you are hearing, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to hear more from us, head over to swordchomp.com, where we have more podcasts, written reviews of the newest titles, a merch store, that has some of the coolest merch ever, but me, Gollum, would have smuggled with, and smuggled with, and I stared at the one wound in my cave. And plenty more. Lastly, if you want to support us so we can continue to make wonderful content, such as this, and earn something in return, please consider going to patreon.com slash where you will find a plethora of tiers to get additional and exclusive content, such as early access to Chomping After Dark episodes, access to a private Discord and Instagram, Patreon-exclusive podcasts, and much more. I don't know why I decided to do a count voice, but here we are. Okay, let's introduce you to the names of the voices that you will be hearing today. First, we have Minas Tirith's Soul homeless person, Deagle's Gravedigger, and Shelob's Piss Path. <laughs> I can say that was a straight face. Shelob's... <laughs> Shelob's... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm fucking it up. Shelob's Piss Path. The... Say Shelob, damn it. Shelob's Piss Path. The editor himself, Rich Meister. Rich, I'm glad you're here, buddy. Also... Like, fuck, man. You you don't think Minas Tirith was, like, filled with homeless people? Nah, it was just you. The wage gap in Middle Earth was worse than modern America. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But I will say, uh, I, as I was writing that intro, I was like, I actually was struggling because I've been writing these, like, funny little titles for us throughout this whole trilogy series, and I was struggling really hard to think of a third one for you. And then I thought Sheila's piss pad, and I was, I was rolling in laughter in my own apartment, and I I feel bad for my neighbors because I was laughing for an exorbitant amount of time thinking about that. Um, I'm really proud of that one. Pretty fucked up. I, I think like every episode, I thought of a funny one, and I always talk about how I'm really proud of it. I think that is the one I'm the most proud of, to be honest with you. But anyways, I'm glad you're here, Rich. I'm excited. Of course. I'm excited, and I'm also feeling a little bit melancholy to end this trilogy. But there's no one I would have rather done it with. There's three whole movies left. I don't know what you're worried about. And then we have a we have a series that'll be coming out that we can do this with. You're right. You're right. We, we must not weep, Rich. But I am so, Shay Layton. Never the Nazgul- end. <laughs> The Nazgul's butler, the Oliphant's shit shoveler, 
and Rosie's psychotic hobbit ex-lover who smokes too much pipe weed and imagines Rosie stepping on my balls with a stiletto. <laughs> Rosie is a... All right. Of course, Sam's future wife. <laughs> oh, those intros are so much fun. I'm going to miss writing those ridiculous intros. But um, So from this point on, as is customary around these here parts, there will be spoilers. If you somehow haven't seen the trilogy or read the books, now is the time to dedicate the rest of your day or night to watching this exquisite movie. It's about four hours long. Days. Hmm? What? Okay. You said dedicate the rest of your day or night, and I said dedicate the rest of your days. Oh, the rest of your days. Sorry, I missed that. Because it's, it's long. Four... It's, it's true. Uh, it's four hours long, so you're in for a long day or evening. But now, turn the lights down low, slip into something more comfortable, grab a piece of lembus bread, and sip on a nice, tasty pint as we tell you a tale by the fireplace. So the movie starts out with two hobbits, Smeagol and his cousin Deagle, fishing when Deagle is pulled into the water. He finds the one ring in the river. Smeagol is immediately entranced with the ring and kills Deagle for it. He runs into the misty mountains where the ring pollutes and controls his mind, turning him into the creature Gollum. Centuries later, Gandalf leads Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and King Theoden to Isengard, where they are reunited with Merry and Pippin. Saruman refuses to surrender but is murdered by Grima Wormtongue. Legolas attempts to kill Grima before he murders Saruman, but is too slow. Gandalf finds the Palantir and brings it back with the group to Edoras. While everyone is asleep, Pippin looks into the Palantir and is confronted by Sauron. He sees visions before Aragorn grabs the Palantir from him. Aragorn drops it and Gandalf covers it before. It can bewitch anyone else. Gandalf presses Pippin about what he saw and learns that Sauron will attack Gondor's capital, Minas Tirith. Gandalf tells Pippin that Sauron thinks he has the One Ring and not Frodo, so he must ride with Gandalf to Minas Tirith so they can warn Denethor, the steward of Gondor, together while Gandalf can protect Pippin. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli must find other allies for the people of Gondor or they will not survive. So things are set in motion pretty quickly at the beginning of this movie. We have some backstory for Gollum, and some loose ends are tied up while all also presenting a bigger problem. We quickly witness the next big event about to unfold as the good folk prepare for Sauron's forces. Rich, tell me if you felt similarly. I felt like the battle to Helm's Deep had a much bigger buildup as we had Saruman talking with his underlings and his interactions with both Gandalf and Sauron. However, with the battle for Minas Tirith, we have a different kind of build-up. I found myself favoring the way the Battle of Helm's Deep was built up in the movie. How did you feel about this? Um, I think that's a fair uh, assessment. The difference being, and, and it's funny because both uh, Return of the King and the Two Towers culminate in sort of this big battle. Um, whereas Helm's Deep feels like more of this desperate thing, and and a lot of the the Riders of Rohan and uh, the 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 fragment of the Fellowship that is there are sort of going in with the attitude that they're just going to try and hold out as long as they can, like before the Elves arrive and all that. They really don't think they stand a chance. The time they have to prepare for the Battle of Minas Tirith, the, the more interesting part of the movie is more about, like, no, no, this isn't a turn of the tide, hopefully we can hold out thing. This is more of, like, no, we need to make sure we can win. And it feels like less of a divisive battle and more of a, like, more about the journey than the, the, the battle itself. Though some cool fucking shit does happen in that battle. Uh, Team Witch King reporting in. Yep. Yep. And uh, what is his name? Gronk, 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 not Gronk. Uh, Robert Gronkowski. No. The 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 big uh, metal door basher thing. 
the one that they break into Minas Tirith with. What is that called? There's a specific like name. Like the siege weapon thing? Yes. Did it have a name? I just yes. always think, I don't remember. I just think of it as, it's, it's a siege, it's a siege No, weapon. it has a name. I swear to God, it has a name. Because they're chanting it. Uh, Look, man, you got notes here. You didn't write the name down? I, I don't know why I didn't write the name. Um, it's, I'll look it up later. I mean, Anyways. it's a battering. It's a siege ram. I, it's okay. I'll, I'll look it up later. It doesn't matter, but... We pretend it's like Walter, so there's like a bunch of origin like... Grand. Walter! Walter! Grand. Walter! It's called Grand. G-R-O-N-D. Okay. Grand. Because they're chanting it. Um, They're like, Grand! Grand! As they're wheeling it up. And I don't know, like... Sure. I haven't read the movies. I don't know if it has some, like, major relevancy. I, I feel like you there's some the reverence to it. Yeah, in the books. Yeah. I feel like it's, there's it's, some... It's so funny you said, like, it, it's been so long since i've read i'm actually in the middle of rereading the hobbit because i'm doing a reread for the first time in a long time um that's awesome but uh i'll get back to you with that at some point because it's been over 10 years since i've read the return of the king yeah it's been a long time for me to reading those books but no i yeah i i don't necessarily dislike the build-up between uh in the return of the king i just felt yeah it's, it's a different kind of journey um I felt that there's... It's less about the battle itself. Yeah. Yeah. I... It's it's interesting. It's not it's not worse or better, per se, but I just... I like that build-up just because... Um, I, I don't know. I, I think I've noticed, like, it's taken me a lot of years to kind of figure out why I like these things. Like, the Fellowship of the Ring is so intimate um, for a lot of it. It's about these nine characters for a lot of the film and i really like that and then helm's deep kind of expands out from that um it, but it still feels kind of intimate it's just about this one country but then the return of the king really expands the scope because it's about middle earth entirely and it's i think about the fate the fate of middle earth yeah it, also the battle shot very differently it's this huge battle during the middle of the day on like these sweeping plains whereas helm's deep is like this backed into a corner like last chance it fight in the middle of a fucking rainstorm uh yeah very different tonally yeah i and i don't know why i i do like i have some ideas as to why i kind of like that that more intimate kind of experience i mean in my daily life i very much um i'm not a the type of social person that goes out to massive parties and goes out to clubs cuz i feel overwhelmed by those kind of situations um it's kind of the same like when i'm traveling and i go to somewhere where there's like a hundred plus tourists looking at this one thing i'm like this is overwhelming i don't want to be here kind of thing and maybe that has some relevancy to this i don't know but um i I think i found myself favoring the helm's deep battle just simply because of the scope of it it's not as like it's a all or nothing does the helm's deep battle have a ghost army no it does not so just something to consider yeah yeah you're right you're right let's move on let's get to the next part of the story Gollum leads Frodo and Sam to the gates of Minas Mordgul and they witness the witch king of Angmar and an orc army set out for Gondor Gollum leads them the black guy (laughs) Gollum leads them up a steep staircase carved into the cliff face across from the entrance to Minas Mordgul the two hobbits are unaware that Gollum is planning to lead them to their death. The Witch King leads the Orc army to Osgiliath, where they overrun the remaining human army there, forcing them and Faramir to flee Minas Tirith. The hobbits decide to take a break. Meanwhile, Frodo rests while Sam attempts to keep an eye on Gollum. He falls asleep due to exhaustion, and Gollum sneaks into Sam's pack. He throws the remaining food off of the cliff face. Sam awakens and finds the food gone. He blames Gollum, but Gollum has placed crumbs on Sam's tunic. Frodo believes Gollum that it was Sam and banishes him. Frodo and Gollum leave Sam distraught as they move upward on the stairs. So, full disclosure, as a child, I thought that Sean Astin's acting here was corny and laughable. 
it wasn't until I was older that I could truly appreciate this moment. Sam puts his whole life on the line to protect his friend and employer. They are traveling together for over a year. He has been warning Frodo about Gollum the whole time, and he sees his friend drifting away. Rich, can you talk about the emotional heft of the scene and the relationship between Sam and Frodo throughout the movies? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sam and Frodo's dynamic is kind of like the heart and soul of especially that that leg of the fellowship. And you do see it all culminate here because there's just sort of this, um, Sean Astin is a fucking killer actor, by the way, but there's just this sort of like defeated, like exhaustion behind him, like his pleading of being like, you're really going to believe him over all of this and after everything we've done. And like, again, like the sort of like defeatedness to it is almost supposed to be Sam at this point, accepting that like, he can't even really talk sense into him because it's he's been carrying that ring for so long like it's getting to his head um yeah i think i think it's probably fair to say the that scene sticks with me more as i get older upon uh yeah when you were a kid when you watched that when you were younger and you first saw it did you kind of chuckle at that scene a little bit because i i always would when i watched it as a kid i can't say that i did um i mean maybe i felt like it was a little bit I wouldn't even have used the term, but like a little like hammy and a little like scene chewing, but which it is, but I think uh, effectively yeah. so. Yeah, I. It's something that you know, as a kid, not really having experienced the average kid, I should say. The you know what the average, not entitled, but the average, not affluent either. The the average privileged kid, I should say, has probably not experienced. Mm-hmm this level of heartbreak or this level of trauma you know obviously that i think there are You've never had a friend drunkenly leave you out of tgi fridays before <laughs> right I, I think there are probably a lot of children unfortunately who have experienced some level of trauma but as you get older and you've experienced your own level of traumas your own level of heartbreaks and whatnot seeing the scene is just so much more impactful when you have the experience to understand what sam is feeling at that moment the, the acting fits what's happening there. And it's easy to forget that um, these movies have taken place over such, like, years and hours. It's easy to forget. Like, if you think about this movie as just, like, a standalone movie, the scene doesn't make near as much sense or hold near as much weight. But obviously... That's the we- one thing these movies we talked about in the past they have a hard time getting like the scale of time across i feel i feel like um because there's no real good way to signpost them in the way like a novel can where like um you think about sections like obviously we talked about in the fellowship podcast like how long the gap between gandalf leaving the shire for gondor is to learn about the ring that it's literally years and years and years um but like another good one is when they go to the house of Elrond, like they're not there for a couple of days. They're there for a few months. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, it takes Frodo a really long time to recover. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that unfortunately it isn't told in the best way in the movies, but that's also a very difficult thing to do. I think that's a tall task, you know, maybe like, maybe I'm giving it, too much credit or i'm not criticizing the creators and developers or directors enough maybe they could have been some where they simply put words on the screen that said a few months later i don't know but maybe that would have taken you out of the immersion and the experience yeah i don't know how i like in the way these movies are shot i don't know that i would like that agreed agreed so i think they did the best they could and i'm sure that there's probably a version out there where they did do that and then they were like, you know what? Nah, this this doesn't. I'm sure they talked about it and decided that it wasn't something they were gonna do. I like, and I get it. And I don't feel like you lose a ton by not having that. It's just an extra layer that is interesting to know. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the next section. Frodo and Gollum come to a tunnel at the top of the stairs. Frodo goes in after Gollum and is chased by Shelob. The giant spider. 
He becomes, excuse me, he becomes trapped in a spider web, but narrowly escapes. Gollum attempts to steal the ring from Frodo outside of the lair, but Frodo overpowers him and tells him he must destroy the ring for both of their sakes. Gollum attempts one final attack, but falls down a chasm. Frodo tries to continue on, but Shelob stings and paralyzes him. <clears throat> she begins to bind him, but Sam appears. After a tussle, Sam wounds Shelob, causing her to skulk away. Sam thinks Frodo is dead after unwrapping his face. Orcs come and discover Frodo. They talk about how Shelob only paralyzed him and bring Frodo to their tower. Sam follows them. The orcs in the tower discover Frodo's mithril shirt and fight over it, many of them killing each other. Sam sneaks in and dispatches the remaining orcs, saving Frodo. They move onward. So there are moments of drama, comedy, romance, suspense, and horror within this trilogy. I feel that this movie has had the most moments of mostly suspense and horror out of the three movies, and a large part of it is the moments with Shelob. We've already talked about how the special effects bring aspects of this story to life, such as Shelob, but why do you think that the directors used more horror and suspense scenes in this film, such as Shelob or Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli confronting the dead men of Dunbarrow? What do you think, Rich? Uh, I just think these parts of the stories lend themselves to that, that it was almost an inevitability. Like, there, there's a in the back half of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a lot more fantastical elements as they get closer to Moria. Um, like you said, bigger set pieces for Frodo and Sam, which is, it's an interesting dynamic almost because Frodo and Sam spend so much of the Twin Towers just kind of going where they're going and dealing with Gollum's bullshit. And then Return of the King is really everything coming to a head for them. Where not to lessen the impact of what uh Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are doing, but I was I always note that in for the bulk of Return of the King, it just feels like uh the three of them are off running errands. Like they're just checking off like some side quests they gotta do before the big battle. It's true, it kinda of feels like that in some regards. Like um I mean even Gandalf in some ways, he has to ride to Minas Tirith to get the uh, the torches lit to call Rohan for aid um, because Theoden mm -hmm. won't do it because Gondor didn't come help Rohan. But then, obviously, uh, Theoden agrees. Denethor, you but mean. yeah, like, a lot, of, a lot of people are running a lot of errands in this film. I will say that, for sure. Yeah. Except for Den Denethor is just going to town on that chicken. <laughs> and the tomatoes as they drip. Um, I, you know... I agree with you, and I think back to, like, the Fellowship, when the four of them are hi hiding under that tree root lean-to, kind of makeshift lean-to, when they first encounter a ring wraith. Or the uh, tree sequence when they're, or the, the nighttime tree sequence where they're chased to uh, Buckleberry Ferry. Uh, th there are some mm -hmm. horror elements, and it's easy to kind of forget those. Again, because this movie takes or this this story takes place over three movies but yeah it felt like like you're saying the fantastical elements are ramped up to to 10 in this movie so they're more noticeable and pronounced i guess so i i i really enjoyed that a lot i really i really like in the extended edition the whole uh extra scenes that are put in of them going into the the cave area to talk to the dead men of Dunborough. I like the additional sequences that they put in there because it builds up the suspense and the horror even more. And uh, there's there are definitely some really, really funny moments where Gimli looks down and he sees the skulls and uh, Legolas and Aragorn tell him to keep walking and he's trying not to be bothered by it. Which is unusual for a dwarf. You know, you'd think dwarves would be like, ah, whatever. It's bones. I've seen these hundreds of times. Hanging out underground, yeah. Yeah. I really like those moments, though. And um, it doesn't really undercut the suspense. It, it all fits so well. Uh, that's one of the things I've really loved about the series, that it encapsulates everything. 
and it's great for that. And one separate thing I wanted to know, this has less to do with uh, Lord of the Rings than it does this other tr uh, series, but seeing Shelob was such a phenomenal thing to see in the movie theaters because one of the things that always bothered me about the Harry Potter movie series was in The Goblet of Fire, they never included the spider in the maze, which was such a big, pivotal part of that book. Um, when they're doing the Goblet of Fire and they're in that, that massive maze right before. Um, Do you mean the Sphinx? No, no, no. It's a spider. It's a giant spider in the maze. Um, I don't remember a spider in the maze. There's a Sphinx in the maze. No, there's a, there's a spider in the maze. That's like, the thing is like, if you remember at the end of the, uh, towards the end of the movie when uh, Cedric Diggory and... Harry Potter are trying to run to the goblet. They're just running and like the, the maze is like slapping them and shit. There was a giant spider they had to fight to get to that goblet. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure. I just don't remember that part. They, I know they cut a lot of stuff from the maze. I remember specifically the Sphinx. I remember that part being big that they cut. Yeah. They, yeah. There, there's a Sphinx in there too, but yeah, there's a spider that they have to fight in order to get to that goblet. Um, and gotcha, they, gotcha. that was probably one of the coolest sequences in all of the movies that they completely just cut out. And at the time I rationalized it as like, ah, oh, that would have probably been a hard thing to film or something like that or to render. But then you see this movie and you're like, well, what the fuck? They put a giant spider in this movie and it's awesome. Um, kind of bummed me out about the Harry Potter movies, but you know what? Lord of the Rings pulled out all the stops. They said, we're going to have a giant spider. To be fair, things Harry that... Potter did already have a giant spider two movies before that. I know. But, um... They, they, they were over their of... spider budget for the series. <laughs> I guess. One of the other things I learned is that, actually, Sean Astin was injured um, in the whole sequence of him trying to fight the spider. Because they had, they had stuff like to simulate the legs. And Sean Astin apparently got, like, punctured. I don't know if it was necessarily stabbed but punctured by one of the uh, prop pieces to imitate Shelob. So, he, Damn. he got hurt a lot in this trilogy. So, he's Got some action-heavy sequences. That'll, that'll happen. He's a tough motherfucker. But yeah, let's jump he's back in. trooper. I mean, he ain't Rudy for nothing. <laughs> Rudy! He'll always be Mikey, one of the Goonies to me. Before Theoden, the Rohirrim army and the three Fellowship members set out for Gondor, Elrond meets with Aragorn on the path. He tells Aragorn that Arwen is dying, choosing to stay in Middle-earth. Elrond also gives Aragorn Anduril. I cannot pronounce it. Anduril. The sword reforged from the shards of Narsil. Elrond tells Aragorn to reclaim his birthright and gain the allegiance of the ghostly dead men of Dunbar. Or it's, yeah, Dunbarrow. The three travel to the dead it. men's lair. I got it. Aragorn offers to remove Isildur's curse if they help Gondor. The dead men agree and attack Gondor calls evil men on ship. Hmm? Oh, dude, no, continue. Taking over them. Meanwhile, Denethor is disgusted that Faramir, Faramir, Faramir abandoned Osgiliath. He orders Faramir and a paltry amount of troops to take the city back. Faramir, knowing he will probably die, obeys his father. Faramir later returns unconscious and in grave condition. Denethor thinks his son dead and descends into madness. As the orc army attacks the city, Gandalf is left to command Gondor's troops. During the siege... Denethor attempts to burn himself and Faramir alive on a pyre. Pippin warns Gandalf, and they save Faramir at the last second. Denethor, Denethor, Jesus Christ. Denethor is lit aflame and leaps from the top of Minas Tirith to his death. I'm not good at this sort of thing, but Rich, what do you think is the symbolism of Denethor leaping from Minas Tirith ablaze? Um, I don't know how much there is pure symbolism in his actual death. Uh, his sort of defeat and like crumbling to the bottom, I guess, in a lot of ways. Uh, from what we know of Denethor at this point, I, I think that the bigger revelation is like that, that pure Stark denial 
of him wanting to burn Faramir no matter what anyone says. And they're like, Faramir's alive. Like, your, your son is not dead. You need to calm down. And, and it's him having this final mental break. And for him mentally, and, you know, as someone who treated Faramir like shit during life, Denethor, as far as he was concerned, his legacy was done when his legacy died with Boromir. Um, so I feel like he gave up on himself and his, his entire familial line when Boromir died. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of interesting things. There's a lot of cool symbolism in this whole set of sequences. Uh, when he sends Faramir and that paltry number of troops to Asgiliath, basically sending them to their deaths. Obviously, one of the best sequences in the movie is when Pippin is asked to sing to Denethor as Denethor is eating his meal. Mm -hmm. And it's just this very, very... Sing me a song. Melodramatic sequence where Pippin is singing this heartfelt song, and you just hear the, the clopping of the hooves as they race, as these troops and Faramir race towards... Oskiliath. And the whole time you can also hear the crunching as Denethor is eating this chicken and he's eating these tomatoes with these tomatoes dripping down his his chin and his face. And uh there's a lot of symbolism there as well. There's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of these symbolic moments. And I guess the only thing that and I'm probably way off base here, because again, I'm not very good at this. One of the big things here is that Denethor basically kind of let this evil rot and fester, not only into Gondor, but his own mind. And like you're saying, he kind of had given up. And so burning, like him burning and running, is kind of like this this rot burning away from Minas Tirith, from Gondor, from from Middle-earth in general. I think that's complacency, almost. Yeah, that too. Like the rot is starting to slowly burn away. Um, that's not necessarily the turning point in the movie, like the tide is turning kind of thing much later in the battle. But I think that's kind of like the first domino that needs to fall. You know, like Denethor, if, even if they win this battle, sure. and Denethor is still the steward of Gondor, that, like, that's going to cause internal problems. But the moment that he burns and falls away, like, the the rot is being burned away from within and um he's an obstacle even if the dark lord is is vanquished exactly yes so, um maybe there's more to it than that um if anybody out there kind of is good with this kind of stuff maybe uh when the show goes live you can explain it to us cuz that'd be great um having some edification on that but that that was just my general interpretation of it so. okay Thaden and Aomir arrive shortly afterward with Eowyn and Mary hidden amongst the army. They start to turn the tide of the battle, but the Haradrim, men riding oleophants, enters the battle, quickly overwhelming the Rohirrim. The Witch King appears and mortally wounds Thaden. The Witch King prepares to kill Thaden, but Eowyn and Mary defeat the Witch King together. She goes to Thaden's side and they briefly chat before he died. Before the good folk are overwhelmed, Aragorn arrives with the army of the dead. They quickly overcome Sauron's forces, clearing Minas Tirith of all of the forces. After quickly, or excuse me, after quick deliberation between the three fellowship members, Aragorn sets the dead men free, allowing their spirits to move on. So one of the joys of this movie and the series is watching Aragorn come to accept his role despite not wanting it. Do you find this concept having any sort of relev- any sort of relevancy to your own life, Rich? <laughs> That'd be quite a stretch. Um <laughs> I mean uh, like I not know. not like not like the not equivalent of his journey, but just in general, like, has there been times in your life where, you know, there's something that you know that is a part of your future, it's something you have to do, that you haven't wanted to accept it, but you grow to accept it and you take it on kind of thing? You mean, like, when it's getting late and you're like, I should stop drinking? I mean, sure, if that's the way you want to take it, by all means. Um, <laughs> No, but honestly... 
it's such a stretch of a concept because the reluctant hero is is a trope um it is it, it is a long it, it is a version of the hero's journey where um characters rise to do a task that they know they are destined to do but reluctant to do i don't really have an analog for that in my real life uh, <laughs> that's fair like i think not not in any way that would be obvious or you know exciting I think about, for to example, talk about i think like uh for example in my life one of the things you have to do in public school and then eventually college if you end up going to college so you have to do group projects and a lot of people do not like doing those. And I understand for good reason, because you don't know who you're getting and it can be frustrating. And there have been times where, um, you know, in my life, like in college, in classes, or, you know, do the various English camps that I've been doing here in Japan, things like that, where sometimes somebody doesn't want to take something on or no, none of the people that you are assembled with is prepared to kind of lead the charge. And you don't really want to. You just want to kind of be in the backdrop because, you know, that's less responsibility. That's less on your shoulders. You know, if if the project fails, if the camp fails, it's not on your shoulders if you're not leading the charge. But at the same time, you kind of know like, hey, I know I could do this job and I know I could do it capably and I can lead the charge on this. And then you kind of reluctantly accept that. You know, for me, those are like those kind of experiences have been the ones for me that I think um, I've kind of taken on. Or recently, obviously, I've been playing a lot of basketball. And usually I kind of want to be the guy who's like distributing, who's passing. But there are times where I'm put on a team that doesn't have a lot of scoring capabilities. So it, and it falls to me to kind of be the, the scorer, the, the, the guy who's taking the tough shots and stuff like that. And that's Obviously, it's nowhere near as becoming the king of Gondor and the free folk. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's like... Don't it's sell like yourself short, man. That's up there. It's pretty damn close. Um, but no, I, <laughs> I, think, I think about those moments where it's like you have situations kind of thrust upon you where you can take, you can take the charge, you can be the leader, or you can let things just fall as they may and probably fail, even though you have the capability to do those things. Ooh, so. the second one that one but no i like it's, it's something that we've talked about through the other two episodes as well is there's so many life lessons in this movie and even if at this point they're tropes they are concepts that have been hashed and rehashed and rehashed of the rehash and they're not new concepts it doesn't matter i mean as long as those life lessons become applicable to you and you take something away and you benefit from that it doesn't matter where it comes from timeless, or how many times this story has been told. Timeless concepts like don't trust people that live in caves. I mean, that's a given. If you never watched yeah, the no, Descent, knows that. you should know better. Know better. Um, let's move on to the next section. Aragorn, accepting his mantle, decides that he will lead the remaining troops to the Black Gate to distract Mordor's remaining forces so Frodo and Sam can traverse the fields to Mount Doom. The two hobbits reach Mount Doom and slowly ascend it, struggling to make it to the top due to exhaustion. As they are almost at the top, they are attacked by Gollum. Sam fends him off and Frodo runs into the volcano. He attempts to throw the ring into the fire with Sam begging him to complete the mission which is a parallel to Isildur and Elrond. Frodo succumbs to the power of the ring, putting it on his finger. The Nazgul begin to fly towards the volcano. Gollum finds the invisible Frodo and bites his finger off, finally obtaining the ring again after many years. Frodo attacks Gollum, and the two go over the edge. Gollum and the ring fall into the lava, melting. Frodo hangs on the ledge, and Sam pulls him up. Frodo and Sam escape as the volcano begins to explode with lava. The Eye of Sauron explodes, sending the remaining orcs scrambling. The eruptions from Mount Doom destroy the Nazgul. 
So this movie has one of the most intense and rewarding climaxes, as the viewer has been waiting three movies to see how Sauron is brought down. Rich, can you remember how you felt the first time you watched this scene? Uh, for the first time, uh, I couldn't really tell you, if I'm being honest. Like, it all feels so long ago. That, it's a good finale. I can imagine when I was younger, maybe feeling a little bit anticlimactic. Um, but, like, here's the thing. It works the way they said it would. It just works. Um, Sauron was not restored to full power, and it's satisfying. It It is a satisfying stumbly but successful mission yeah it's it's interesting like i i didn't feel anticlimactic at all because like they're going to the black gate they have such a small number of troops left they really do and it's just this mixture of all of the of the men and and it's not a lot and sauron still has a bunch of forces in mordor that are marching uh towards the black gate and it just the troops are completely surrounded, like encased and surrounded. The remaining trolls um, come out to kind of fight with them. The Nazgul are in there picking humans up and just eviscerating them. And it's it's very it's a very very hopeless scenario. And I'm sure you remember it that scene where Aragorn is knocked down by the troll, and Legolas is trying to run to him to prevent him from being executed and the Nazgul were flying back to kill Frodo and Sam because the Nazgul can see Sam in that in that kind of not necessarily alternate dimension but something like that it just feels it is a a spirit plane yeah and then the ring is destroyed and I remember when uh when Frodo went over the edge like I'm feeling like this yes, but no, kind of feeling like we don't want Frodo to die. I mean, he suffered, but we want him to still live. And that that moment, I love that moment where everything's kind of silent with this like faint hint of music and Gollum is just falling and he's holding the ring as he's falling into the lava. He's not aware that he's about to die because he has the ring and there's nothing else in the world that matters. And as soon as he looks at the ring as he's like done treasuring it, slaps him to the lava and the, the ring falls out of his grasp and melts. And then as they're as they're going to escape and the, the volcano explodes, the, the fellowship and all the men, their happiness turns to fear and sorrow as they realize that the two hobbits are probably dead, even though they've succeeded in their mission. Yeah. Do you think it you think at any point when they were running towards the Black Gate, Aragorn was like, fuck, I should have asked the ghost to hang out for like another 25 minutes. I know that's a really big joke and a meme uh, among the people <laughs> that uh, have watched this movie. And like, yeah, that would have made, I mean, there's a lot of things that would have made this film. In in the, in the novel, they more explicitly mention like the pact, like the, the dead men of Dunbar agreed to help hold Minas Tirith. And after that, their bargain is over. Right. Right, you know, like, there's that, or the the whole joke um, that was obviously also kind of alluded to, not so much directly oh, in Clerks 2, is like, why didn't the Eagles just carry them to Mordor? And it's like, that's not how it works. I, obviously, it's more explained in the books. Um, but, yeah, like, th- there are some of those things, like those jokes and those memes, but... Even the trees walk in those fucking movies. Yeah, why aren't the trees taking them to Mordor? But, uh... It's just three yeah, fucking it's... movies of walking. Even the trees walk. <laughs> but, no, I, I really like this climax a lot. I, th- I thought it was great. Um, it's interesting, because the next... At this point, it's like the movie has, like, ten endings. Um, which is... That, yeah, that is one thing that is always really funny about this movie. I love it, but it just cuts so strangely. It it is, yeah. So let's hop let's hop into the the ten endings really quick as we do the mad dash towards the let's, end. Let's cover all the endings. Yeah, let's Woo! Co- we got six endings to get through. We do. Gandalf flies in with the great eagles and locates the two hobbits, rescuing them and flying them back to Minas Tirith. 
ending number one. Frodo is reunited with the remaining members of the Fellowship, ending number two. Aragorn is crowned the King of Gondor, taking Arwen as his queen. He and everyone else pay respects to the four hobbits who left their quiet home to help save the world. Ending number three. The hobbits return home to the Shire, where Sam ends up marrying Rosie Cotton. A few years later, Frodo feels the effects of the ring and the Nazgul blade he was stabbed with, feeling as if he will never recover. Frodo departs with his aged uncle Bilbo, Gandalf, and the elves to the Undying Land. There is a particularly emotional scene as the four hobbits say goodbye to each other. Frodo leaves Sam the Red Book of Western, West March, which is an account of Bilbo's and their adventures. Ending number whatever. <laughs> Sam returns to the Shire after Kirk, watching whatever. Sam returns to the Shire after watching Frodo sail away. He embraces his family and enters his home. And that is the true ending of this wonderful, amazing series. Um yeah, I really I really like how everything is wrapped up because obviously a lot more happens in the books and the subsequent material here. Um a lot happens after these these three books, but um they leave it in a good place, I think. Um Yeah. That 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 whole that whole ending sequence is one that emotionally gets me every time uh when Frodo is saying goodbye to the hobbits. And I I remember all of the hobbits have kind of talked about how that scene was actually truly incredibly emotional for them because um it was kind of it was the end, you know. And th those tears are real. So uh such a good ending intense man yeah it, it really is one of the things that i wanted to talk about because i actually i'm going to kind of free ball here because i i had a hard time trying to write some questions to end this this particular podcast um because part of me sure. doesn't want it to be done but i'm going to free ball some questions here one of the things that always bothered me about the ending of these movies i remember when they first came out the the, the return of the king especially is a lot of people what made fun of uh frodo kissing sam on the forehead as he says goodbye to all of them and obviously it's not aged so well but i had a lot of friends being like oh it's so gay and that always really bothered me a lot obviously a for the implication can't believe these men who clearly care about each other are vulnerable what pieces yeah. of shit <laughs> yeah i mean that that in itself bothered me that that automatically makes somebody gay um but yeah like the, the deeper thing is that they suffered through all of this shit, basically, um, many life-threatening scenarios, and presumably, um, Frodo was never going to see Sam or these his other two friends ever again. He was never going to see anybody again, and it's such an emotional, impactful scene, and now, obviously, we kind of live in an age where it's become more acceptable, not completely acceptable, but more acceptable to be vulnerable as men with other men. And the whole fact of like being gay is bad has largely kind of gone away. Obviously it's, it's an ongoing battle, but um, yeah, like I guess my question here, Rich is like, did you kind of experience that, that I don't want to say discourse cause that's too nice of a word that, uh, ignorance and that belligerence when you had watched those movies and um also do you think that in some ways like this kind of scene paved the way for people to be more accepting of men to be vulnerable with each other in 2021 and going further i remember the discourse quote-unquote discourse i remember that discussion around the scene and uh, thinking even, like, when I was younger, like, then, that it was just dumb because, like, that's clearly not the point of the scene. And you people are investing their weird ideals in it. Um, but if I'm being honest, I really don't think it contributes any factor to that. I don't think it, it's something people are considering when... I think culturally we just changed. I wouldn't credit this with it in any way, shape, or form. I See, I... It's hard to say, but I think I slightly disagree with you just because um, I think that... 
maybe some of these things were kind of ahead of their time, but they also kind of planted the seeds for these things being more accepted. You think about like this scene, or you think about Scrubs, um, the relationship between Turk and JD. Those kind of sequences or those kind of moments, I think, are so were so influential um, for the future. You know, I one of the things growing up for me is I've always been like this really extremely caring and empathetic human being, and I always wanted to show my friends that I, um, male and female friends, that I love them in a non-sexual way, and I always felt was made to feel guilty if I like wanted to hug my dude friend, you know, uh, some of my dude friends, like when I used to get drunk when I was younger, I'd kiss him on the cheek or I'd kiss him on the forehead. And I'd be like, dude, I love you, you know? And it wasn't like something sexual. It was just, I had this, this, this love that I wanted to show and give them. And when I was younger, I was very much made to feel like if I did that, then that automatically meant I was gay or that automatically meant that I was somehow weird for doing that. And I'm glad that there were scenes like this movie to make me feel like, you know what, that it's, there's nothing wrong with the way that I want to show that to my friends. Um, as long as obviously they, they consent to that, you know, I'm not forcing that on them or anything like that, but for me, I, it did something. Um, and I'm glad to see that our culture is moving forward. If it resonates yeah, if it resonates with you in that way, I'm not trying to discredit that for anyone. I'm just saying, for me no, personally, yeah. um, I don't think it, it affected me in that way. Like, But I've always been a little bit more open about that stuff, pr- pretty much in the same way you're saying. Um, and I think cultural over time, um, people have... It's We're in a... Not perfect, but we're in a better spot where I feel like you can be a little bit more vulnerable... Which is good because a big deteriorating part of men's mental health in America in particular over the years has been that, like, men of, like, past generations, like, say specifically of, like, our father's generations, like, statistically just don't have that many friends because male relationships didn't keep up in the same way. Well, dude, yeah, Um, a lack of platonic intimacy amongst males in previous generations is, is a really big problem. Um... I, I do I do believe that. Yeah. And I think one cool thing is that this scene exists because people can, you know, go watch these movies that are almost 20 years old now. Fellowship is 20 years old. Um, I think all three of them are 20 years old at this point from when they were shot, not necessarily when they were released. Just, but, just about, yeah. Yeah. Th- they can go back 20 years, watch these films, and say, wow, you know, this moment, like, it was ahead of its time. And maybe it contributed to where the culture is at now in terms of accepting platonic intimacy between two men or two women. I mean, I think two women has been there for a while, but you know what I mean. Um, Longer, but yeah. Yeah. No, no, and that's the thing. Like, those relationships are different in the sense of, like, I am thankful that, you know, in my late 20s, like, I have a large number of close platonic friends that are both male and female that I am that level of close with that is, like, it's not a sexual, not everything's a sexual relationship. You can genuinely just love someone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, yeah. I I just, I love that Also, I really want somebody to say that to me about Lord of the Rings films. They're like, Man, these movies were ahead of their time. Like, bro, you know these books were written like a hundred years ago, right? <laughs> right. But th- this, that ending is so impactful for so many reasons. Um, but now, I mean, we, that we've come to the end. We at this point, all the three movies are done. All these people's stories have ended. Um, what, like, overall? What what are what are you kind of left with the impressions your thoughts um, upon ending this trilogy? Like, what are the major takeaways from you, for you, from this trilogy? I think, in terms of the this series is important to me. It will always be important to me as a big fan of fantasy and Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien's works are so important to shaping what we consider to be modern fantasy in a lot of ways. Um. I think in terms of, like, novels of, like, that grand of a standing to film adaptation, Lord of the Rings was, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings was ahead of its time in, like, the miles they were willing to go to make this 
unbelievable page to screen blockbuster um that it speaks it's a test of time that even as effects performance set dressing costumes go like 20 years on it's still still really holds a candle to modern shit yeah i would agree with you on that one of the one of the cool things to kind of think about is that the books really were ahead of their time they have shaped modern fantasy like you said so much so that like i can't even think of modern fan or fantasy contributors before jrr tolkien i'm sure they exist out there and i'm sure somebody influenced tolkien in some way but it's really hard to think past that point because he has such an influence even today to how we view a lot of fantasy um but another thing on top of that what you're kind of you're you're saying in some ways is that even though peter jackson had the template there obviously he he advanced things ahead of his time too jr tolkien really shaped how the fantasy genre as a whole i think that J, uh peter jackson really shaped movie making and the future of not just him obviously but the future of special effects and how you film movies as a whole i mean without peter jackson would the marvel universe be as extensive and as grandiose as it is now it's hard to imagine that without the existence of peter jackson and his crew the many people like richard taylor um from what a workshop all these people who worked on this on these films um that we would have really films the way changed they are. film filmmaking for the time yeah yeah like two innovative minds or groups of people really did a lot and it all stems from the same story in the same universe and it's it's phenomenal um i've taken so many life lessons away from these these three movies and these books um which i've already detailed through these three episodes so i'm not going to rehash a lot of those but it's it's one of those thing one of those stories that you can revisit you can take something different away each time because you're at a different point in your life you've had different experiences um and i i think that's what makes the best stories the most timeless stories is you go back and you read something you watch something um or you listen to something you experience something and there's a different lesson there for you there's a different narrative a different aspect of the narrative you you pay attention to i think that's what makes the most timeless of art and um yeah this trilogy is just the one one of the things that has just continued to give to me over the years and um, i'm really appreciative of it you know having been able to live in a time where i grew up getting to watch these movies um and have them be able to shape who i am and shape my interest so totally um i don't you know i don't really have too many more questions because like we've really discussed um we we had so much discussion with the first two films and some great discussion that uh wrapping up the trilogy is amazing and i think we've discussed a lot of things but before we ask our final question that we always ask rich is there anything else you want to mention about these movies anything i missed any supplementary stuff that is important for you to note before we ask the final question and wrap this whole thing up um nothing that's really probably worth getting into on this podcast too much i mean we're always open for more token discussions uh in the future i happen to know about some three pretty lackluster movies we could do um <laughs> but yeah i think i think that uh that about sums it up for me yeah well like a couple of things that i want to impart like if you've enjoyed this trilogy or you've already enjoyed the trilogies before the movies you haven't really read the books you haven't read the sim cimmerillion um I even though it reads kind of like an encyclopedia in some ways, I highly advise you go do that. Or even if that's like too overwhelming, just look at some various YouTube videos. There are people out there who kind of summarize. I was um, going to say certain aspects of the Cimmerillion. And I think um, I've said this before. I wouldn't recommend the Cimmerillion to almost anyone. I really wouldn't. Uh, it is such a difficult read. It is like reading an encyclopedia. I've read it before and I've, there's maybe two people in my life I've ever recommended it to, and they both loved it, but I, I know the type of reading they're into. Um, it is like reading a, a made-up history textbook. Uh, it is a tough read. Yeah, and that's true. So you can watch YouTube uh, videos that kind of summarize that stuff. 
it's really cool to see what happens to the various people after these movies end. Uh, Aragorn has a long reign, um, very long, because he's one of the Dúnedain that he lives for hundreds of years. Eventually, he passes on, and uh, Arwen ends up going to the the Grey Havens, the Undying Lands, at some point. Um, Sam, after Rosie passes, he ends up going to um, the Undying Lands. Uh, things happen with Legolas and Gimli. Um, things happen with Faramir and Eowyn. Uh, Eomir, things happen with him. Uh, Gandalf, obviously, there are things to talk about there. There's so much that happens that um, if you really don't want the story to end, you want more. Just watch some YouTube videos if uh, an encyclopedia of fictitious history sounds overwhelming. Watch some of the YouTube videos because there are people out there who are kind of summing that stuff up. It's really fascinating um, to kind of see what happens to people after the Battle of Middle-earth is done and the war with Sauron, Sauron is over. But um, Yeah, love these films, love uh, the books, love just this universe. I'm so thankful, like I said, we live in a time where we've got to experience this in both book and movie form. Um, the Hobbits, I feel a little bit differently about the the, the three movies. I like the uh, cartoon movie that they did years and years ago, back in the 70s. I really like that. That's one that I grew up The Rankin and Bass one, yeah. Actually. Yeah, that one's actually great. Um, maybe we will do The Hobbit at some point. I don't know hard pressed to want to do those but um i think just for the sake of i want to talk it. about smog smog i do like um and i'm really excited for that um that tv series from amazon whenever that comes it's going to be interesting to see what that september that of 2022 baby yeah that's going to be fun to discuss but um my last question this is the last question we always have to ask and i think i know the answer but rich would you recommend this movie to other people to watch? No, it doesn't hold up. Yeah, no. Uh, I don't really... I would expand upon that, but we just spent an hour doing that. Yeah, so. yeah exactly. I feel the same way. Um, I think that, honestly, these three movies are must-watches. Like, I'm surprised that junior high schools and high schools aren't making this homework. Like, obviously, you can't say, hey, go read the three books when you're in 10th grade, because that's a all ask. But watch these three films and do, like, a unit on them. Absolutely. Absolutely, I think. I took a creative writing course in high school where fellowship was required reading. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think that they should be required reading in some circles or in some areas. But um, that's going to do it. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing this series. I know Rich did as well. I'm sad to see it come to an end, but um, Gandalf so expertly said when I read at the beginning, things just have to end, unfortunately. But uh, the series has been great. Uh, be on the lookout. We're going to have some um, more gaming ones go up here in the near future. We're going to be doing some other movie and TV show adaptations of stuff as well. Um, I think we enjoy being able to talk about movies once in a while, so I think that that's going to kind of be a mainstay going forward for this this um this feed. This is an excuse for us to talk about movies, and I like talking about movies. I love talking. Maybe about if movies. we get too focused in that, we we rebrand a movie thing. But who the fuck knows? I like movies. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we'll completely rebrand because I like doing deep dives on games as well, but. Yeah. Oh no no. What I'm saying is, you know, you never know if that become this becomes separate from the games ones. You That's never true. know. Anything's possible. That's true. That's a fair point. But um anyways, I want to thank Rich. I want to thank you for being here. Um I appreciate you having the discussion with me and allowing me to path about a little bit and uh be a little bit verbose. I want to thank you to the listeners for taking this three part journey with us. Uh it was a great time. I want to thank you. I want to say thank you to everybody who worked on these films from the smallest job to the biggest job. And then of course I want to say a retroactive thank you to J.R.R. Tolkien for taking the painstaking amount of hours and years and time to expertly craft such an amazing universe. Um, thanks so much. We, I know I appreciate it through the years, but um, 
we will be back next time with another episode. Be on the lookout for that. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we love you. Be safe out there. Uh, things are kind of crazy right now. Um, I don't need to tell you that. Be safe out there. Show some compassion and love for your fellow neighbors and your fellow men, women, non-binary, everybody. Uh, we will see you on the next episode. Take care.